Hello and welcome to Random Interesting Facts, the podcast about everything and nothing, with your host, 42. This week's topic is immortality. So, let's dive right in with fact number one. Immortality is mathematically impossible for humans. Humans have long harboured an obsession with living forever. You can see why. Life can be pretty shit at times. But for the most part, it's nice to be alive. There are endless things to do and see. But ironically, those who've actually attempted to gain immortality have something in common. So far, they have all failed often cutting short their lives in the process. To give you a few examples from history, Henry II of France's lover, Diane de Poitiers, died of chronic gold poisoning in 1566 after years of drinking gold chloride and diethyl ether in the vain hope that she could stay young forever. Alexander Bogdanov, a Bolshevik associate of Vladimir Lenin, thought that blood transfusions were the key to eternal life. Ironically, he died in 1928, at the age of 54, after swapping blood with a malaria sufferer. And for some weird reason, the extremely poisonous metal, mercury, has been a historical favourite of those who wish to cheat death throughout the ages. Qin Shui Huang, first emperor of the Qin dynasty, died in 210 BC, after imbibing mercury, and he was not the only Chinese emperor who believed it would make him immortal. Western alchemists, meanwhile, thought that mercury was a key ingredient of the Philosopher's Stone, the mythical elixir of life. Even Sir Isaac Newton experimented with the stuff in the hope it would stave off death, but all it gave him was mercury poisoning in later life. Some bizarre 20th century treatments included an injected serum made of extracts from guinea pig, dog and monkey testicles. It was believed this serum would be most effective at staving off death if it was injected into a man's testicles. Yes, that's right, the Victorians spent their time injecting monkey testicles into people's testicles. Over in the East, Sokoshumbitsu is an ancient tradition practiced by Buddhist monks. Sokoshumbitsu, otherwise known as self-mummification, is a gruesome process which involved a monk starving himself of regular food and drink, instead sustaining himself on a tea made from resin before finally being sealed into a tiny tomb while still alive. Upon death, it was the hope of the monk that all that lovely resin he'd ingested would preserve his body and his soul forever. The monks who did this didn't view themselves as actually being dead, but in some kind of trance-like state, from which they would awaken in five and a half billion years' time to assist Maitreya, the future Buddha, for the benefit of all mankind. At least they died with loftier goals than most. But life without an end feels tantalizingly close nowadays. Some scientists have gone so far as to say that the person who will live to a thousand years old is already alive today. Corporations are spending billions to fight off death. 
And whilst healthcare has dramatically extended our lifespans, no one so far has been able to prevent death. And according to a recent scientific report, they never will. This paper established that death is mathematically inescapable. The team created a mathematical model of cell competition within an organism. Cells in a human body have two competing impulses. They have to work together for the body to function properly, and individual cells must make sacrifices for the greater good. But they also compete directly against each other for survival, in a process which, it turns out, is very similar to natural selection. This means that the fittest cells survive and proliferate, but inevitably, some of those cells go rogue. They're called defector or cheetah cells and fight for their own survival rather than for the holistic survival of their host organism. And some of them can become immortal, which, as you've probably guessed by now, can lead to cancer. Telomeres, structures which cap the end of chromosomes, get shorter each time a cell copies itself eventually becoming so short a cell cannot regenerate, and so we get older. Cells also evolve over time with some weakening and dying, and these contribute to your body's decline. However, if we called all these sluggish cells, then cancer cells would proliferate in their place. In other words, by stemming the aging process by weeding out weak cells, we will inevitably enhance cancer cells' ability to thrive. And whichever way the scientists looked at this problem, the conclusion was always the same. Cell function gets worse over time, either by the natural aging process of cell deterioration or being swamped by cancer cells. Suppressing one or the other inevitably led to the rise of the other. So it looks like our bodies are stuck in a kind of mortality catch-22. But that's not necessarily the end of the story. It's just another problem we need to overcome. And with technology progressing as fast as it is, it may be a problem that we overcome sooner than anyone could ever expect. Next up, moment from history. Where each week we look back at one particularly odd moment from the past. In this episode, we look at Napoleon's Great Prison Break. Most of you know the name Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon, for short. <laughs> Get it? Very short, if history is to be believed. Except, he wasn't. That was a rumour that was put about by his enemies. He was actually around 5 foot 6, which was an average height for a man at the time. He started out as a revolutionary, and emerged from the horrific bloodshed of the first post-revolution years in a bloodless coup as leader of the French Republic. An office he held from 1799 to 1804, at which point he decided he'd like to call himself Emperor from now on, and began his megalomaniac quest to conquer the rest of Europe. Naturally, the other powers in Europe didn't take too kindly to this, and it led to a kickback from the Spanish, Portuguese and British on one hand, and the Austrians, Prussians, Russians and Swedish on the other. A decade later, following a disastrous campaign in Russia, he was forced to abdicate and banished from France. Under the terms of his abdication, he retained the title of Emperor, 
but was now only emperor of a small island in the Mediterranean called Elba, with a population of 12,000, a bit of a come down from ruling over 70 million Europeans. So, with Napoleon defeated, banished, and now presumed confined to the island of Elba, no one could have imagined that he could be defeated again, let alone rise up again. But sure enough, he would be defeated again at the Battle of Waterloo, only a year later. But the rest of Europe underestimated him. He was not one to retire quietly, and the idea of him staying under some kind of island arrest of his own free will was, with hindsight, pretty preposterous. He was actually allowed to choose his own place of exile, and he picked Elba because it had good weather and sound defences. It wasn't exactly a prison. But he was expected to stay on the island and was under official watch by a British officer named Neil Campbell. He was given two residences and complete control of the island. The islanders initially welcomed him rapturously, but as it became clear that they were expected to pay for his lavish lifestyle on their island, their enthusiasm waned as did Napoleon's for the island, especially as the money promised to him in the treaty didn't materialise, and his coffers were rapidly emptying. With news from France that his supporters back at home were planning a rebellion against a new French king, Louis XVII, it only spurred Napoleon on more to escape from Elba. On the 16th of February, 1815, Campbell, suspicious that Napoleon was up to something, left the island to report to his superiors. That was a big mistake. Napoleon immediately issued orders to prepare the Inconstant, a brig of about 300 tons for a sea voyage, disguised as a British ship. Meanwhile, he continued to issue orders and act as though everything was completely normal on Elba. When Campbell's ship, the Partridge, returned without Campbell, Napoleon sent the Inconstant to sea, so the British wouldn't see it in its new disguise. And he sent his small but growing army of personal soldiers to work in his garden, so that everything looked normal. When the Partridge set off again on the 24th of February to collect Campbell, Napoleon placed an embargo on any other vessel, including fishing boats, from leaving the island, so no one could alert the British or French that he was up to something. And the next day, he simply told the Elban officials that he was leaving. And so his fleet departed in plain sight to no less than a cannon salute, with around a thousand soldiers and some 100 civilians aboard. The following afternoon, Napoleon's ship passed by another French ship, the Zephyr, and came close enough to exchange pleasantries with its captain but he let Napoleon pass unimpeded. The captain of the Zephyr must have been duped by the British disguise of Napoleon's ship, or just won over by his nonchalant attitude. By the time anyone realized that they just passed Napoleon, who'd escaped from Elba on the high seas, Napoleon was hundreds of miles away, dropping anchor between Cannes and Antibes the following day. Whilst the British were left floundering in the Mediterranean, the French were completely unprepared for Napoleon's invasion. 
All the powers of Europe were at the Congress of Vienna, still deciding how to dismantle Napoleon's empire, as he nonchalantly made his way back to Paris, gaining support as he travels the 200 miles through staggeringly beautiful countryside along what is now known as the Route Napoleon. He arrived in Paris on the 20th of March 1814, without a single challenger along the way, to a hero's welcome after being in exile for less than a year. He managed to hold on to power for another 100 days, before finally being defeated at Waterloo, and shipped off to yet another small island, St. Helena, this time for good. Now we'll take a short break and very soon we'll be back with fact number two. Fact number two. Silicon Valley is obsessed with immortality. Eternal life for our physical bodies might be a mathematical impossibility, but perhaps we need to abandon our physical bodies. Death might be inevitable if we're totally reliant on biology, but what if we aren't? What if there's a technological alternative? This tantalizing idea is being pursued extremely enthusiastically by several Silicon Valley biotech companies whose billionaire bosses don't see why they should ever have to die. They're part of a movement called transhumanism, which seeks to solve the problem of death. It's a philosophical movement that believes our future lies not in our biological bodies, but in some kind of technologically enhanced version of ourselves. At present, the human body can theoretically last to about 125 years. But if you've ever met someone in the later stages of their life, yeah, they're hardly in peak condition. During the last few decades, our bodies lose muscle strength, agility, hearing, sight, and brain power. Over the past century, medical and social advances have raised our life expectancy by around 30 years in industrialized countries such as the UK and the US, which is phenomenal. But our bodies and brains still begin to slow down as early as our mid-twenties. By our 40s, we're losing neurons at the rate of tens of thousands a day. And by our 80s, no amount of solving Sudokus or a good night's sleep or Omega-3 can hold back the harsh process of aging. And what would be the point of living forever if you no longer have the physical or mental ability to enjoy that life? And this is where Silicon Valley's obsession with death is very interesting. Whilst some refuse to accept the mathematical inevitability of human death, others are looking at the concept of a brain-computer interface that would link our minds directly to computers, with the obvious ultimate goal to just completely upload our minds to the internet and live forever in some kind of cloud. Although many of these ideas are still theoretical, there are already BCIs in use today. Sensory BCIs, such as cochlear implants, can transmit messages directly between the implant and the brain. 
and BCIs have shown great promise for helping paraplegics or stroke sufferers to regain motor function, or to remotely control computers and robots through thoughts alone. Obviously, no one's more enthusiastic about this concept than good old Elon Musk, who wants humanity to stay ahead of artificial intelligence instead of being destroyed by its Terminator style, which he believes is our greatest future threat. And he says the only way we can do this is by becoming some kind of cyber-human hybrid. At the moment, BCIs need conscious thought, but Elon Musk's company, Neuralink, envisages a future where human brains will be fused to such a point with technology that our interactions with said technology will just become instinctive and mind and machine will truly become one. We would have direct mental access to the internet and potentially to all the other humans alive, communicating telepathically. But the way this would happen is the stuff of sci-fi nightmares to make this remarkable enhancement possible. Neural nanorobots would be injected into your bloodstream and travel to your brain, where they would cross the blood-brain barrier and attach themselves to your synapses and neurons. The idea seems fantastical right now, but Musk's company has already deciphered brainwaves that control hand movements, enabling a macaque monkey with electrode implants to play computer games by simply imagining it's controlling a joystick. Google founders Sergey Brin and Larry Page are also chasing immortality through their health organization Calico, which aims to solve death. There's also Unity Biotech, bankrolled by Jeff Bezos, amongst others, along with another Silicon Valley company, Sierra Sciences, both of which want to roll back the effects of aging. And the list just goes on and on. Fact number three. Bacteria may hold the key to human immortality. The cells in our body inexorably age, but what if that process could be reversed? A scientist in Russia claims to have found a bacterium that may hold the key to immortality by doing just that. The anti-aging industry is full of grand claims. In 2016, the CEO of BioViva, Elizabeth Paris, had telomerase gene therapy and claimed that her immune system became 20 years younger overnight. But the process lacked proper scientific scrutiny and was not surprisingly met with a healthy dose of skepticism and derision by the wider scientific community. But the scientist in Russia, Dr. Anatoly Brushkov of Moscow State University, stumbled on his possible key to immortality completely by accident, potentially ruling out any profit-driven self-interest. In 2019, he accidentally discovered an ancient bacterium, which had survived in the permafrost of Mammoth Mountain in the northern Siberian region of Yakuts for three and a half million years. His further research into the bacterium led him to believe that the so-called Bacillus F could hold the key to eternal life. He wanted to see what effect the bacterium could have on other organisms, so he injected it into fruit flies and mice, as well as human blood cells and plants. 
Remarkably, he found that elderly female mice started to dance and have babies, despite being well beyond the usual reproductive age of mice. And plants injected with Bacillus F thrived, even under inhospitable and frosty conditions. Having successfully tested his life-enhancing serum on rodents and insects, Brushkov, in true mad scientist style, injected it into himself. He reported that it stopped him from getting the flu for several years, increased his energy levels, and gave him extra stamina to work longer hours. However, like Elizabeth Paris, his claims couldn't be proved scientifically, and some suggest the placebo effect could be to blame. Research has shown that placebos can have very physical and remarkable curative powers, although nobody knows quite why. So, although claims such as those made by Dr. Brushkov or Elizabeth Paris should be taken with a pinch of salt or a sugar tablet, it doesn't mean Bacillus F couldn't be the elixir of life. The jury's still out on that one. Bacteria are fascinating and amazing organisms. But we'll have to wait a little while longer before a royal popping bacteria pills to be able to dance like lab rats well into our 90s. And that was Random Interesting Facts. Thank you for listening, and I'd absolutely love to hear your comments and suggestions for future episodes. And also be sure to like, review, and subscribe. Please do leave a comment if you've learned something new from this episode. And if you have your very own random interesting fact that you're just bursting to share with me, then tweet it using the hashtag RiffPodcast, that's R-I-F podcast. So remember, tweet your interesting fact using the hashtag RiffPodcast. And thanks again for listening.